Hello, and welcome to another episode of You Can Manage That, a podcast for first-time managers who want to level up their leadership skills. I'm your host, Chris Asper, and if you're a first-time manager who wants to be an inclusive leader, then you need to listen to this episode. Joining me today is Brandon Campbell. Brandon helps businesses build and articulate their commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion through her DEI consulting firm, Brandon Campbell Communications. She draws from over 15 years of experience working with clients worldwide to provide actionable solutions that center equity and inclusion throughout their communications and cultures. Her BA in political science and her master's in international relations highlights a lifelong interest in learning about the interplay of different systems, practices, and cultures in human stories and relationships. As a speaker and strategist, Brandon works with clients worldwide to provide solutions to infuse DEI throughout their systems and cultures. And organizations that have benefited from Brandon's expertise include Fortune 500 and organizations such as the NFL. Brandon lives in Pennsylvania and is the proud mom of Riley and Matthew and loves to laugh, travel, hold impromptu dance parties, sing loudly, read, listen to podcasts, and be in nature in her free time. Brandon, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah. I'm really excited to bring you on. Before we begin, I do want to give a special shout out to a friend that we have in common, Caroline Leonard. Without her, this interview wouldn't exist. So Caroline, if you're listening to this, thank you so much. Thanks, Caroline. Brandon, tell us about your journey. How did you come to do what you're doing today? Sure. So I am someone, as you said in the introduction, who has always been fascinated by differences as well as what makes people similar. And that was really sparked by the fact that I was an Air Force brat. I grew up traveling a lot and lived internationally growing up, lived in Japan and England before returning to the U.S., and that is really what laid the foundation for doing this work ultimately. Once I started working, I began in higher education doing a lot with international education, cultural competence that then moved to doing some more traditional DEI work. I worked, for example, at Teach for America in Philadelphia on the administrative side on leading some of the DEI work there. And I just always had this thread of interest between what makes us different, what makes us similar, and also a passion for advocacy, seeing when things weren't right or weren't fair in workplaces and organizations, looking at different ways stories could be told. I worked with both the NFL and the Eagles doing something a little different than some of the work I do now, but along the same lines really looking at working with them on inclusive content, especially content geared towards women, which we know is something football has struggled with, and really having conversations about, do we need to have every article about women talk about October and pink on the field? Is that really what we want to do? And maybe women football fans are interested in the same things as men. And how do we then put that into content? Interesting. Actually, Brandon, one thing I did notice on I mean, I'm Canadian, so I'm not really huge into football. But I did notice on Monday night, on the screen, there was a male coach. I think he was for the Colts. There was another male broadcaster. And then there was a female broadcaster. <gasps> yes. And I, I, it was the first time that I noticed a female broadcaster in football. 
you're absolutely right. I did not catch that game, but I read a lot about that happening. And there have been a lot of significant strides, obviously a lot more to go. Mm-hmm. There are always, unfortunately, stories about players and their treatment of women. But it's so interesting. I started that work with the NFL just casually. I had a sports blog about the the Eagles. And men would often, on Twitter especially, just be very not happy that a woman liked football and had a voice about it. And I never understood that. You know, it's a, it's a game. If you can understand it, then I can understand it just as well. And I know that a lot of women reporters have faced that same pushback, especially with football. You don't see it as much in baseball or other sports. And I'm really glad that that is starting to change. There are some coaches who are on the sidelines that are women. Not a lot. They're not head coaches, but you're starting to see that barrier be worn down. And that absolutely is what should be happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, perhaps now we can discuss the importance of representation. So for those who are listening, we are recording September 14th, 2022nd. This will be released in October. But Disney just released their trailer of The Little Mermaid coming out in 2023. And Ariel is black. So in your opinion, why is it important for women to see women in football or for little boys and girls to see their ethnicity represented in Disney characters? Why does that matter? Gosh, I love that you brought this up so much. I feel really passionate about this. A lot of the work in DEI and challenging our own biases, I really encourage people to just observe the world and news stories. And this is a great example Why are so many people up in arms about the skin color of a fictional creature? Mm. So that's one point. There's been a lot of backlash, but also I would say I've seen a lot more outpouring of excitement for this new telling of the story. Mm -hmm. And some parents have been filming reactions of their children, their daughters, seeing a princess that looks like them. And I would encourage folks, if you haven't seen some of that, there's a, a lot on Twitter, for example, on TikTok. Go and look at that. That tells you in real human emotional terms why representation matters. Mm. It matters because children deserve to see themselves reflected everywhere. In dolls, in stories that are told in their schools, in history, in restaurants. It benefits everyone to learn that there are people different from them, and that's a positive. There is actually a research phenomenon called the Obama effect that showed when Barack Obama was president, the researchers had a group of students, a group of black children and white children. They looked at data and testing from before his presidency and then right after he'd been sworn in. And just by virtue of having this positive figure in office that challenged so many of the stereotypes we hear about black men, They could not identify any other reason to why these children performed better on the testing they were given, other than the fact that they were encouraged by someone who looked like them seeing that in media. That is just such a, I couldn't get over it when I read about that, and and that says so much. If you only see one kind of person, hear about one kind of experience, you think that's the norm and begin to think that maybe something's wrong with you. I'm very involved in my school board and school district locally, and I've heard stories of South Asian students who would bring in their food to lunch, and because it was different, because it was something others hadn't been exposed to, 
being made fun of and then them being ashamed of these amazing meals their parents were preparing for them and then wanting to blend in with everyone else because, oh, this is different, it must be wrong. So representation matters, it is everything. It is so important, not just for those from marginalized identities, though it is incredibly important for us. It's also important for white folk to see, hey, people exist in the world who aren't white folks. In fact, the majority of people in the world aren't white and they can be princesses, they can be heroes, they can be everything and beyond, just like you. So that's why it's, it's important and I'd say imperative. I'm just reflecting on my own experience in grade school during lunchtime. It was grade five. At the time, Kraft had something called Lunchables. I don't know if you remember it. It came in a yellow box. It was like before charcuterie boards became like popular. I brought that and and that's what I'd want. And I'd want it because I, I didn't want people to know what I actually eat at home. Right. And again, I think you said it was because, oh, that's stinky or that's smelly or that's different or, or that's gross. Why are you eating that and then get made fun of? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think because of that, I probably wasn't proud of my own culture. And I just would, would hide the things that were so important to my culture, like food, just because I didn't think it was safe. It was more safe for me to blend in versus stand out. Right. And that, that's heartbreaking to hear. And yet it's the experience of so many folks. And so there's a lot of work that is being put out there, like the work around anti-racist or anti-racism. And I know you do a lot of work around this. So can you help people understand what it means to be anti-racist? Yes. So being anti-racist, it's not an identity, but it's really about your actions. So is your action anti-racist? Ibram X. Kendi, who is brilliant, a leader on this topic. If you haven't read How to Be an Anti-Racist, I strongly recommend it. He says that there's no neutral ground of non-racist. Actions are either racist or anti-racist. So it means when there is a racist action that takes place, to be anti-racist, there is necessarily a counteraction that calls out that racism and challenges it. And it's ultimately all about challenging racism everywhere it appears with the long-term goal of changing the systems that perpetuate racism. Do you have a, an example? Just because in, one of the things that I'm thinking about is I might be doing something, but I'm just so used to doing it that I may not even recognize it that I'm being racist. Sure. So a great example are microaggressions, which folks may have heard the term, but it is little actions that happen, usually unintentional, we're unaware, but that are little acts of racism or Mm. sexism. So for example, I'm a black woman. I have often heard and been told, you are so articulate. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And people mean it as a compliment. It's not a compliment. And I've actually had people try to argue with me when I say, actually, that's not a compliment. And it's not a compliment because by saying that, you are indicating that you are surprised (laughs) that I am articulate. Mm -hmm. You're saying the quiet part out loud. You may not even realize that your brain is thinking, oh my gosh, this black woman can speak really well. But that's what you're doing. And I'm always told this in professional context. So why would I not be articulate if I'm in this role? Right. And also for anyone thinking and hearing that and getting uncomfortable, when have you said that to a white person? Oh, (laughs) 
Yeah, I was going to say that, right? When you go up to a white person and be like, you're really articulate. Exactly, exactly. So an example of anti-racism would be if you hear that microaggression occurring, it's important that, you know, there are people like me, I've always been really outspoken, even before being in this work. People like me will tell you, I'm happy to tell you that, that that's offensive. But that burden shouldn't have to be on the people experiencing that harm. Right. So to be anti-racist, if you are someone who hears that happen, you tell that person, hey, what you just did was actually really racist. You don't let it exist just because that's what's comfortable, just because it's uncomfortable to call it out. You challenge it. Another example that I imagine uh, your listeners have seen, experienced, there's a lot of data about how there are significant salary gaps for anyone who's not a white man. So even if you are not ultimately in control of the figure that's given to a new hire, if you see that, you know, this is going to a Latina, uh, Latina woman or um, a black woman and this number is significantly lower than what is paid to white men for doing the same thing, challenge that. That's anti-racism. It's not, oh, well, this is how it goes. You may not win every battle, but racism thrives in darkness. When we call it out, that's when we can start to change things. And that's why anti-racism is so important. One of my absolute favorite quotes from Austin Channing Brown, who is a brilliant author, and she said on a podcast interview, being anti-racist is being a better human to other humans. Mm. And I was driving when I heard it, and I had to literally pull over and write it down. It blew me over. I use it in every presentation because it's so powerful and it really is that simple. This is more than race. It gets to all of the isms. It is trying to do better by everyone. Thanks for for those examples. I think when I'm listening, I'm like, hey, I want to call it out, but I'm also afraid that if I stick my neck out, I'm going to get fired. So what are some ways or phrases or techniques that I can use so that way I can say what needs to be said? Because I'm, I'm also afraid of I know this sounds bad, but offending or sticking my neck out too far that I get canned. Sure. And unfortunately, that is a real concern for folks. So that's where what the overarching culture of your organization is really important. And hopefully there's work that's happening on an ongoing basis, not just focused on race, but just focusing on inclusion overall, trying to be respectful and affirmative for everyone, regardless of how they identify. That said, I know it's not the case everywhere. So fear is the biggest barrier I've seen to folks behaving in an anti-racist fashion, taking action. And it makes sense, both because of the reasons you expressed Depending on your manager, who you report to, the workplace, speaking out may be really looked down upon. And also just culturally, Western cultures were really about being harmonious and not making anyone uncomfortable and not challenging folks. Having challenging conversations in the workplace is something almost no one is good at. So some strategies. I encourage folks to approach things with curiosity instead of judgment. Mm. At the same time, kind of impact is more important than intention. For example, the example I gave about you're so articulate, it never works to hammer anyone over the head to be accusatory. It can be someone who wants to do the right thing, but if you come at them and put them on the defense, that's not going to go well. So perhaps you can say, 
I'm a little curious as to why you asked so-and-so, uh, why you commented on them being articulate. Uh, is that something that surprised you? That's a great way. You're not accusing. You're asking. It's opening a conversation, and that conversation can provide an opportunity for you to share with them, depending on what responses you get. Oh, I asked that because, you know, I'm sure this isn't your intention, but that actually is something that some people can see as being offensive. So having conversations is really an important way to go about that. And I know that sounds just really basic, but we tend to look at things like challenging conversations as meaning that they're contentious and full of conflict. It does not have to be that. So asking questions is a great way to disarm people, to show a little bit of you know, in this situation, it's more, it's critical that the person you're talking to have a measure of humility, but you're not coming at them. And if you ask the question in that way and have a discussion, certainly, depending on personality type, some people may still feel attacked, but there's not going to be anything really tangible for someone to say, you were disrespectful of my authority. So that's a really good strategy for folks who are concerned about the overall impact on their careers, who just are scared to be anti-racist. Ask questions, because that's something that likely will help you discover how this person is thinking. The person, as they're answering, they may kind of have an aha moment and be like, oh my gosh, I never realized that. Yeah, yeah, because you're pointing out something in a way that it's more self-discovery and people tend to change not when someone tells them to change but when they discover for themselves oh that's wrong exactly right. so, so you wrote an article called five ways to infuse anti-racism into your small business and this podcast is for first-time managers for the managers listening today what are some ways that they can infuse anti-racism into their leadership so I'll go back to the example I gave a couple of minutes ago about pay scales and being consistent and transparent with salaries. That is a huge way to be anti-racist. You're challenging a system that historically has been unfair to those who are not white males. When you think about it, infusing anti-racism and diversity, equity, and inclusion work into your management style is really about building relationships and valuing the people you work with because of their differences, I would say, instead of in spite of. So that is an aspect that's so important because this is where you're starting the relationship. So that's a really big example. Another way they can infuse anti-racism into their management style is applying the technique I just gave for confronting someone who maybe has committed an act of a microaggression, really working on adapting that mindset on your own. And by that, I mean being curious instead of judgmental. One thing I do want to say, even though anti-racism clearly in the name talks specifically about race, Mm -hmm. It really gets to the broader work of diversity, equity, and inclusion, really gets to kind of all of the isms. And so what I say to folks, because sometimes if I do a training on anti-racism, folks will say, okay, well, what about the LGBTQ plus community? There's no way I or anyone else would be saying it's important to center the humanity of BIPOC individuals, but oh, it's totally okay to, to treat other people like trash. That's not what it's about at all. So really just thinking about fairness and equity towards everyone. And by that, I mean, maybe your employee is ADHD. 
that's something we don't talk about a lot in the conversations about diversity, certainly in workplaces. Maybe they have a different approach, a different learning style, and maybe asking some questions can help you get to that. And having that curiosity also helps you build a relationship and find out, okay, this is different than I thought. You're not judging and saying, this is wrong, this is unacceptable. If it's different, but they're getting to the same end goal, is that really a problem? And maybe the person is struggling to get to that goal. Again, having that curiosity and that conversation can really help for you to figure out, okay, what can this person do? What can I as a manager do to help get the best out of this person? So that curiosity and that approach, that humility is really in many ways I would view as, as anti-racist because so many times there's judgment of different work styles. We know that people from different cultures tend to show up a little bit differently in workplaces. Mm-hmm. And just kind of checking yourself and, and realizing, okay, there may be a reason for this. I'm not going to judge it. How can I learn more about this person's story and what may be happening here so that we can really be the best team possible? As you you were talking, you know, made me think of a story of, for those of you who are listening, you may not know this. I'm Filipino. I was born in Canada. My parents immigrated to Canada in the 70s. And we were taught that, especially me being the youngest as well, I don't interrupt people when they're speaking. And I also had this habit of like looking around the room and waiting for my turn to speak. But with cultures that I've worked in, people tend to be Caucasian. A lot of my managers were, and they would see that behavior and look at me and be like, well, that's not a sign of a leader. A sign of a leader is to interrupt and interject and, and to speak up. There, there needs to also be this element of you know, understanding, that, like you said, the different cultures, how they operate, look at that person and be like, that's not anti-leadership behavior. That's the person showing respect um, because that's what their culture is about. Absolutely. And that's a great example. And that brings me to one other idea for your audience. The way we take up space and who we allow to take up space is a huge part of cultures and is a huge part of how we can unintentionally discriminate against certain folks. Your example is so important because there are different cultures and the way they show up. There are different people have different experiences. Maybe at their last organization, they were viewed as too outspoken, so they don't want to be viewed that way at a new place. But this is something I've observed a ton as a woman in particular. How much space is being given to men? Is there space for women? Are they able to speak up if they want to? If there are folks who are Black or Asian or Latino in the room, are they given a voice? Are you allowing them to have a voice? So that's a delicate balance, but that's another way that managers can look at how they're even managing their meetings and who is showing up how, and that can identify some trends that they can then work on to make sure it's not always the same person dominating the meeting and therefore getting their ideas heard. And in your example, then the opportunities for other folks to be viewed as leaders, to get on exciting new projects, them not getting it because they aren't comfortable with or weren't taught to show up in the same way as a Western white man. It's not just only actions, but part of our culture is language. Absolutely. And so the words that we say have the power to exclude or to include. And in your bio, you talk about centering equity and inclusion throughout their communications. I'm curious to know how you know managers create negative and toxic cultures or non-inclusive cultures with their language. Do you have some examples of that? 
I do. I love this question so much because the language work is when I'm doing a policy audit and looking for specific language that could be questionable or exclusionary, but I don't often have a chance to talk about how that looks in interpersonal relationships. Mm -hmm. The example that pops right up for me is, are you saying the names of the people on your team properly? That may sound so simple, but every workplace I can think of someone who is from a family who immigrated to the U.S. or just has a different quote-unquote name, they're often given a nickname because it's easier. Sometimes folks will get to a point, you know, maybe they've been at an organization for three or four months and everyone said the name wrong the whole time, so they don't feel comfortable correcting folks. When introducing someone to an organization, part of the onboarding, be sure you are saying their name correctly ask, am I saying your name correctly? What a critical way to show someone that they matter to affirm their identity. So that's a huge one. Mm -hmm. Another example along those lines, if someone tells you their pronouns, use them and it will take some work. You may make mistakes, but there's no way to want to do better for people than to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. So those two examples come to mind. Another one is something I've experienced. If someone comes and shares feedback, perhaps, maybe a little bit of a critique, don't dismiss that as being negative. Because if we have a critique, it usually isn't positive. That doesn't mean it's not true. So by dismissing someone and saying, oh, you're being too negative, that's dismissing their concerns. It's saying, I only want to hear what you have to say if it makes me feel comfortable. So that's another big one. Look at the words you use when people provide you with feedback. We have examples of negative language that could have the power to not include. Or what would you say are then examples of positive and open language to be able to create that culture of inclusion? We all had to move to a virtual environment because of COVID two and a half years ago. And something that we had to be really deliberate about because things get lost in translation, we had to be deliberate about framing expectations for the meeting. I think that can provide a really good example and framework of what it can look like to be really inclusive in creating the culture that you want, at least with your team. Thinking about and just naming the fact we on this team, in our interactions, in our meetings, we are respectful to one another all of the time. The management needs to be curious instead of judgmental, which is part of a humble leader and an inclusive leader, really encouraging your team to do the same. Instead of making judgments, you missed that deadline, you did this wrong, you didn't do this because of this, creating stories in our head, asking questions. That's a great way to avoid misunderstandings that often happen and misunderstandings that often happen because of cultural differences. I do things differently than other folks because I'm a different person and I bring different experiences. So those are some examples. So using language to shape the expectations and to just be explicit about them. That is one of the most powerful and actionable examples I can think of. This work is hard, and I think people need to expect that if they're going to be anti-racist and take anti-racist actions, they have to get used to discomfort. Is this why DEI work is so hard, is that people don't want to be uncomfortable? Yes, absolutely, in a nutshell. I mean, when you think about it, of the things you want to be in life, uncomfortable is never on that list. Never. 
it's something no one wants. So we naturally try to avoid discomfort. Part of discomfort and the discomfort of DEI work is making mistakes. That's another thing. Most of us go to great pains to avoid. And there honestly is no way to avoid making mistakes in this work. You can grow your knowledge and you should, but you're going to make mistakes. You know, when you meet new people with different experiences, we all do the best we can, but that doesn't mean it's going to be perfect each time. And especially in Canadian, American, Western cultures is the very antithesis of what we are raised to want to do. We want to achieve and do things right. You can see how hard this is for folks just by saying what happens if someone is called out for making a mistake, for doing something racist. To use another recent example from the Emmy Awards, Jimmy Kimmel and his skit that interrupted Quinta Brunson's acceptance speech. A lot of commentary, fallout, and then an apology. No one wants to have to make that apology. The other part of it is, ultimately, I do think we are good at heart. The fact, if someone tells us what you did made me feel bad, that really hurts. And we tend to, rather than kind of deal with that, we get defensive, we lash out. So that is honestly, I think, the number one reason why so many folks are resistant to this work and why this work is really hard for all of those reasons. And also, it never ends. <laughs> <laughs> All of your life, you're going to be learning, you know, pronouns are a great example. We were not talking about people's pronouns five years ago, but now it's part of the conversation. Now a community has said, hey, this is part of what's important to me so that I feel affirmed and respected and valued. And the correct response is, great, then I will add this to what I do. And I'm going to stumble and make some mistakes, but that's what I'm going to do. And that's going to keep happening as long as we are alive. And that's why that humility I keep referring to is, is so essential. Just be willing to learn. And if someone says, hey, you hurt me, you ultimately want to be a better human to other humans, I would imagine. And certainly as managers, if you're not good to the humans who are on your team, then they're going to leave. We all know the research on people leaving managers and not organizations. So at the root of DEI is showing that you care about people. And when you feel yourself getting uncomfortable, realize, you know what, is, is my discomfort what's important here? Or is it just centering the humanity at all times of this person across from me, these people on my team, this person who's said, you know, intentionally or unintentionally, you've caused me harm. And I think there's got to be a genuineness and an authenticity about it, right? Like that I'm not just saying this to check a box, but really I am doing my best to, as you said, trying to be a better human. Absolutely. And I think that is probably the number two reason why this work is so hard. There's no checklist. Mm. And I say that within usually the first couple sentences of any training that I give. And wouldn't you know, <laughs> almost every time afterwards, like, do you have a checklist that you could share? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Just to make sure I'm anti-racist. Okay, so I got the pronouns. I'm saying their names correctly. Uh, I'm okay with their food and their music um, and the way that they dress and them being quiet. What else do I need to do to make sure that I'm anti-racist? 
Right, exactly. And Shaq, white supremacy and patriarchy have all been toppled. Like, I wish if there was a checklist, could someone let me in? It would make my job a lot easier. So there's none. There absolutely is no checklist. Sadly, there's none. I have a framework that you move from acknowledging that you have more work to do, Mm -hmm. growing your awareness, moving to action, and it's arrows indicating it's a circle. It's a cycle that keeps continuing. And that's the replacement for the checklist. Mm. It's very different than how we work, especially in organizations. We're very much, you know, here's our project plan. We're going to achieve this by this date. There is so much work that can and should and has to happen, but it never gets to the point, okay, we did all those things. We did our DEI training. We're done. Nope. That is not how it works. And that is a really hard reality to swallow. Mm-hmm. It's a marathon and not a sprint. And that's how we have to look at it. We just finished talking about being uncomfortable. And I think one of the uncomfortable things that an organization needs to do is to start having conversations about race. How do you recommend organizations or managers to start having conversations about race? Race is such a taboo topic in almost every workplace, especially the American workplace, Canadian workplaces. We are often taught that it's a discussion you don't have in polite company. We are taught that to talk about race is a political conversation. As we think about moving towards opening that conversation in our organizations and with our teams, in addition to the learning that happens when we grow our awareness, there's also unlearning that has to happen at the same time. And some of that unlearning are things that we internalized and and thought were correct and then realized, oops, maybe it isn't so correct. I contend talking about race is a human rights issue. When you're talking about someone's humanity, that's not political, that's human rights. If we had these same conversations, but said it was about someone in South Africa, for instance, we would say, oh, well, that's so wrong. But all of a sudden, if we change the context and it's where we are, oh, can't talk about that, that's politics. Mm. We have to let that go. We absolutely have to do that. And as a manager, this is an area where, again, you have to look at what's the greater context of what's happening in your organization. If there are conversations already happening within your organization, that's phenomenal. And take the time then to discuss those things on your team. That's a step I often see that skipped. There will be this one training. We're all a little bit uncomfortable. Great. Let's go back to our desks and pretend that nothing happened. Give people the time and the space. It doesn't have to be and probably shouldn't be everyone all in one room. But let your folks know, I heard what was said. This is really important. And I'd love to continue the conversation. In our one-on-one on Friday, I'd love to hear how you're thinking about this. Mm. I'd love to hear what you want me to know about this. Leave it open-ended because the other really challenging thing Many managers want to do the right thing when it comes to having conversations about race. They truly do. And sometimes, and this is really counterintuitive, sometimes going right into it with every employee may not be the right thing. And what I specifically mean, your black and brown employees may not want to talk about race with you. They have to deal with so many challenges related to race in every other aspect of life they may not wanna have that conversation with you in the workplace. So having that opening, and to what you said previously, working on being authentic, 
you're doing work to build relationships. When people trust you, then they'll feel comfortable opening up more a little bit. But ask, have some well-placed questions, mm. some open-ended questions, opportunities in your check-ins, in your just day-to-day -day conversations where you're giving openings to hear what people think. And maybe it's a way to back into conversations. You know, maybe how, if you notice a dynamic, like I described before, where one person is hogging all the time in a meeting, other voices aren't heard, you can look around and see people are feeling some type of way. How do you think that meeting went? If I could do something differently, what would that be? And maybe the conversation is kind of back ending into the challenges that race in the workplace are presenting, but having those openings and letting people know you want to have those conversations. I think just the invitation, like putting out the invitation Absolutely. is important, not just once, but often, often many times. Cause like you said, black people, brown people, Asian people, they either may not feel safe to talk about race. So if you invite them once, they may be skeptical, but if you keep asking them, they're like, oh, this person wants me to talk about this. Okay. It's an invitation. It's genuine. But then also be okay. Like it's an invitation. It's not forcing those individuals to talk about it because sometimes the people that are talking about it are the onlys, the onlys on that yes. team, right? And so I've got all this pressure to represent my race when I'm one person who has this experience. And so don't put that pressure on me. And also as well, I'm thinking about George Floyd. When the HR team at that time, we had two people who were black and the rest were white and it was me, I'm Asian. We wanted to hear from them, but that's a lot of pressure on them to talk about it when they're still processing as well. Yes, absolutely. That's why I really wanted to mention how in your desire to talk about race, you can't put that kind of potential harm on the black and brown employees in your organization. I have so many experiences that I can think of where just really often police shootings, awful experiences have happened. And I have had to show up at the workplace as if nothing happened. And I thought a lot about if I had been in a workplace when the George Floyd murder was occupying all of our minds, what would that have felt like? I think what often is misunderstood is how painful these incidents are. And many times that's why folks don't want to talk about race in the workplace because they don't want to have to bring that pain to work on top of all the other pain they're experiencing. So decentering yourself in all ways is critical when you think about having conversations at work. Just because you want to talk about it, how do you want to do that? You can't force it down people's throats. In the work that I do, you may be listening to this and being like, well, that doesn't seem to make any sense. <laughs> Provide the space. Mm. Let people know that you are aware that this happened. It's awful. You know that people are dealing with it in different ways and you acknowledge that and want to give them space. And I really encourage you to give them space. I'm sure there were organizations that expected people to show up the next day and still go to all their meetings and all of that other stuff when their hearts are absolutely broken. Acknowledge this has happened. I want to talk about it. If you want to, I am here. Give that opening, provide the space. And also know people may not take you up on it. They may not be ready to talk about it. They may never be ready to talk about it. But I can tell you, speaking only for myself, Gosh, that would have meant a lot mm. if I had ever received that from a manager, and I never did. And we know how many police shootings, murders 
took place of black men from just the past decade. So even acknowledging it so that you don't have someone who already probably feels alone. I was usually the only black person. You already feel isolated and then you feel even more isolated when this event happens and no one's acknowledging it and you're having to pretend that you're not dying on the inside. Yeah. I mean, I felt the same way when older Asians were being attacked in like streets of New York and San Francisco and it made me think about my parents when they went out for a walk and I'm like, am I going to be worried about that too? And yeah, you had to put on a good face on the outside, but on the inside, you're worried. At least having that space and acknowledgement would have been great. As we wrap up, Brandon, what's the one thing you want my audience to remember from this conversation? I'd like your audience to remember that this is not just about employees, people you supervise. This is about humans. It's about their realities, their stories, their emotions. It's about being a better human to other humans. That's really as simple as it is and as simple as it gets. So really try to frame thoughts and actions around DEI, around racism based on that. It's about valuing and uplifting the humanity of the people you work with. Brandon, can you describe the type of work that you do with organizations? Yes. So I do a number of things, but ultimately what I do is a lot of the conversation we've had here, I have with organizations. Hmm. In particular, I would say one of the things I do the most is start those initial conversations about race as hard as they are let people know some of the realities, try to infuse a little bit of laughter, some love, but also some some tough talk about why this is important, and then ease them into the work that needs to happen. Working with the HR team and looking at their policies, looking at their recruiting strategies to see how diverse their pipeline is, how are they onboarding folks, are they transparent about their pay policies? So it is the heart work and then also the analytical work of, of doing audits of practices and systems that are potentially including or excluding folks. So that that's a lot of the work I do, as well as just some general talks and, and trainings on why this work is, is so critical. And if they want to find out more about you, where could they go? The best would be my website, brandoncampbell.com. That's spelled B-R-A-N-D-Y-N, Campbell, C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L. My, I'm pretty active on Instagram. You can find me on the gram at brandoncampbellcoms, C-O-M-M-S. I'm also on LinkedIn, and you can find me there. I'm on Facebook, too, at Brandon Campbell Communications, but honestly, I'm on LinkedIn and Instagram more but I am very easy to find and I would love for your listeners to reach out. Yeah, so for more information about Brandon, you can check out her website, her Instagram, her LinkedIn, maybe her Facebook, but all the links are in the show notes. Brandon, this was an enlightening conversation. Thank you so much for just being honest, sharing yourself, sharing your expertise, your time with my audience today. Thank you so much. You are so welcome. Thank you, Chris. I loved this conversation. Thank you for listening to You Can Manage That. For more information about Brandon Campbell, you can go to her website, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. The links are in the show notes. I'm Chris Asper. For more information about me, check out my website as well. Feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. I love to get to know more about my audience and what you want to hear next on the show. Link to my website and LinkedIn are also in the show notes. 
If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe to the show and leave a review on whatever platform you use to listen to the show. Join us again next time when we talk with other leaders and experts so you can manage that. Bye for now.